Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. What it means to be a holy church, to live a life based on His perfection, His sanctification, and our pursuit of both. Amen? And we're going to do that by the challenge offered by Peter in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. It says, but like, the, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is such a huge thing. Listen to me, this is important. Be holy as I am holy. The Bible tells us that if we are to call ourselves Christians, we must walk as Christ walked. Christ walked holy. So because God is holy, we should also be holy. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. How do we meet this mandate? And I don't mean us congregationally alone. I mean us congregationally and individually. Because that which the church is, we should each be individually. Does everybody understand where I'm coming from there? The church, house, the people in the church, the work of the church should be set aside for God. Should be holy. Each of us as we live our lives outside of this church ought to be set, our, ought to be set aside for God. Which is to be holy. Because He died, His Son Jesus died to remove us from what we were to place us in who we are so that we might have the ability to do what he's called us to do. And in this instance, really the encompassing thing that we've been called to do is to be holy because he is holy. And so I want to talk to you about that today. Most specifically, I want to talk to you about how that isn't just for the spiritually elite. We have somehow, and I don't know if it happened in the dark ages with the Catholic Church, or and we've just continued it, or what happened? But we have, for some reason, determined that the clergy amongst us are responsible for living rightly. The clergy amongst us are supposed to do the things, the spiritual things in our lives. When this isn't the case, we are all called to do spiritual things. We are all called to pursue God. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. It doesn't matter if you're an elder or a deacon. It also doesn't matter if you're a baker, if you're a truck driver, if you're a realtor. It doesn't matter who a firefighter. It doesn't matter who you are. God called you to be holy because you were a Christian, and to call yourself Christian is to walk like Christ that walked, which is holy. And so I want to remove any doubt before we get started that I'm talking to you. Because I'm going to, I have a tendency, I know this because I've sat in church before. We all have a tendency, a proclivity, if you will, to, to sit and be all, man, that's really good stuff. Glad he ain't talking to me. Right? I'm here to tell you, I hope you wore your steel toe boots today because I'm talking to you. Because I don't care how long you've been saved, five minutes or 50 years. You're not holy yet. you got stuff you need to work on. You're not going to be perfect until you see that which is perfect. 
If I was to ask everybody in here who had sin in their life, if anybody raised their hand, I would call you a liar because the Bible calls you a liar. For he who says he has no sin is a liar. I think one of the main reasons the church doesn't move forward as quickly as it should is because we're not willing to admit that we, that we struggle. That we're all sinful. I, I alluded to this last week, but I, I, was, I, I believe the church would be such a stronger entity. If I said, who struggles with blank and inserted sin here? And everybody was honest and stood up that dealt with that sin. You know what that would do for the church? It would do a couple things for the church. One, it would heal the church. It would unify the church. And it would let those people in the church that know for sure that they're not fighting their fight alone. And let me tell you, when you're not fighting your fight alone, you'll fight longer and harder than if you had to fight your fight by yourself. You're not the only one dealing with the struggle that you're dealing with. And I thank God for that. Because I got some problems. <laughs> I'm jacked up. But God, amen, our responsibility is to be holy. That means absolutely perfect without blemish or to pursue holiness. And so I want to talk to you today about how to do that. How does the church, us individually and corporately, become holy? Number one. If you're taking notes, and I recommend that you do, as, as always. The church is holy as it acknowledges the truth. The church is holy as it acknowledges the truth. Let me read this verse to you. These verses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous. A lot of y'all got hung up on the homosexuals. Yeah, let's talk about them homosexuals. How about we just talk about the covetous for a while? Let's get in your wheelhouse. What about the liar? Any of y'all lie this week? Because the Bible says you ain't going to inherit the same kingdom that the homosexual isn't going to inherit. Let's get worried less about what the nature of your sin is and the fact that we have some. Ooh. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is the truth of the word of God. We have to acknowledge, if we're going to be holy, the truth of the word of God. Sadly, we live in a world right now and have for several generations that was much like the time of the judges where we determined to do whatever is right in our own eyes. We have determined to call the truth whatever is most convenient for us. And we don't have the right to do that. We don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to do that. If the Bible says that it's wrong, it's wrong, period. It doesn't matter what you think about it. It's wrong. And we have to set it down. It's time we stop making excuses, start calling our truth the truth. If your truth is different from the truth of the Word of God, then your truth is wrong. 
And if your truth is wrong, you can guarantee that you'll be judged according to your wrong truth. This is, and that judgment will be that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I know I gave a precursor warning to the last group. I'm going to step on your toes today, so I'll go ahead and give it now. I'm going to step on your toes today. This is, I, told, I put it on Facebook yesterday. I think this is one of the most challenging messages because holiness is hard. But it's absolutely necessary if we're to call ourselves Christians. And so we have to acknowledge the truth. And the truth is, is that there will be people that will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they've determined to define their own truth. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to sound counsel. And so I'll say it again, if your truth is in direct contradiction to the truth of the word of God, your truth is wrong. And the Bible calls you a fool. I can remember, man, my granny used to get mad. I said, that dude's, that dude's stupid, or that guy's a fool. or I'd say something like that because I couldn't use any other F words without getting hit in the T. And she said, you're not supposed to call anybody a fool. And then I read my Bible a couple years ago. I was like, well, she didn't even read her Bible. Because the Bible calls us a fool if we determine to set the truth according to our own standard. I can't imagine a better definition for foolishness than that. So how do we, how do we avoid the judgment that comes with identifying our truth as the truth? We read the Word. We recognize His will, which is His Word, and we adjust our life accordingly. I, over and over and over again. I've said it till I'm blue in the face. I'm going to say it some more. It, it'll be the thing I hope I say last. Read your Bible. People are, man, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I do. This is it. Now, the Bible's not going to tell you who you should marry. Right? Probably. Well, the Bible's not going to tell you who you should marry. But you know what? It'll tell you who not to marry. But you know what else it'll give you? It'll tell you? It tells you? Ask for wisdom. So how about you ask for wisdom about who you should marry? And so see, even then you're using the word of God to determine who you should be marrying. When we ask God for wisdom, we ask him for his perspective, his knowledge, and his experience. These are the three things contained in the wisdom of God. And in the things that aren't immediately spelled out in Scripture, I could use God's knowledge, His experience, and His perspective. But we have to understand His will. And in understanding His will, filter our life through it. And then if it's different than what the Word of God says, we need to act accordingly. We need to set some stuff down. Otherwise, we won't inherit the kingdom of God. Otherwise, we're going to walk around deceived. That's what this verse says. That's what these scriptures say. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, you're only going to be deceived if you do these things thinking you're going to get in. So why are we deceived? We're deceived because we don't understand the word of God. We're deceived because we can't recognize the truth. When a secret service agent becomes a secret service agent, 
and he has to figure out what a counterfeit bill looks like, they don't give him a counterfeit bill to study. If they did, they'd have to give him 20,000 different counterfeit bills, and he'd have to memorize all of them. And then they'd just make another one, and he'd have to memorize that one too. Instead, they give him the one dot, the $100 bill that is the one that is the true $100 bill, and say, study that. Because if they'll study that and come for intimately familiar with what that's supposed to look like, then any variation that doesn't look like that isn't the truth. You see the spiritual principle? If we understood what the truth looked like, when the counterfeit presented itself, we wouldn't be deceived. God desires that we not be deceived. That's the reason He gave us His will. We have to learn to defeat deception if we're going to be holy. How do we do that? Read your word. Pastor Jim, you smell it. You smell it. You say, I went, smell like one, smell like one. You sound like a broken record is the one it's actually going for. That's okay. Because that's the truth that I'm trying to convey. I learned a long time ago that if you tell any group of people one thing 20 times, they've heard it once. Read the word, do what it says. First, I'm sorry, James first, James 1, 21 and 22 says this. This is how we defeat deception. Putting aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. So you have to commit to putting yourself aside, picking up humility, receive the word implanted which will save your soul, which is the gospel message. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude, who deceive themselves. My pastor's very first sermon he ever heard. He got, gave his life to the Lord, asked his pastor, he said, so what am I supposed to do now? He said, read the Bible, do what it says. Read the Bible, do what it says. He goes, that's not, okay. lay something on me, I need something more. He goes, no, that's all you need. Read the Bible, do what it says. Read the Bible, do what it says. You want to defeat deception in your life? Put aside all filthiness and all wickedness, which means crucify your flesh. Pick up humility, which means be submissive to the will of God because you can't receive anything from God if you think you already have everything you need. And then read the Bible and do what it says. And you won't walk as the heathen walks. You won't walk deceived. And you'll walk in the truth. Otherwise, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I know sometimes I, I get told regularly enough that I'm rough, I'm rough around the edges, like sandpaper, like the job of a sledgehammer that could be used with, with a hammer. But that's okay. You know why I'm so tough? from the pulpit. You know why I'm so pointed toward at the pulpit? Because the idea of any of you not making it to heaven because I was afraid to tell you the truth scares me. 
I told this to the first service. I'll tell it to you, the, the thing that keeps me up at night. And I can't find any evidence for it in Scripture, so don't, don't look for it. But this is just in my mind. This is my imagination, probably. The Bible says that there ju- there's a judgment coming. There, this is the reason I tell you the truth, because I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I, get, when I die. I'm certain. I'm confident. And so I'm standing at the throne room of God, or at the throne of judgment. And he asked me, which should terrify all of us, good or not. Because even if you're good, you still got to give an account for every stupid thing you said, every dumb thing you did in front of a holy God that's never done anything wrong and then watch him determine your reward. I like people, all, I ain't worried about that. I'm just trying to get in. You'll care about that when you're facing down a holy God, I promise. So anyway, I'm standing there. In, in my head, this is how I see it, the throne room, at the throne of God, and we go through my whole life, and he takes this stuff that is useless and burns it away, and he says, okay, you're good, well done, good and faithful servant, or whatever he says, but he says, but I don't want you to go in yet, I want you to stand right here, and I'm standing here, and he goes, John Smith, hey, John Smith, with his big, loud, booming God voice, because we weren't paying attention, he goes, John Smith. And John Smith doesn't answer. And he shifts in his throne. And he looks at me. He goes, 2017, I sent John Smith to Launch Point Church for you to tell him the truth, and you didn't. Can you explain to me why he's not here today? That freaks me out. I know the sovereignty of God will put somebody else in his path. But that's how important it is that we tell the truth. That sometimes messages be hard. Because sometimes it's the hard thing that knocks us loose. Number two. The church is holy as it remains separated. Second Corinthians chapter six, just one chapter one book over, same chapter. Starting in eleven. Our mouth is spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. Yet you were not restrained by us, but you were restrained by your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Let me explain to you kind of what he's saying. He's saying, listen here, Corinthian church. You're not jacked up because we've kept anything from you. You're jacked up because you've kept things from God. More specifically, you've kept affections for yourself you've determined not to let go of the world you've kept a piece of the world for yourself you haven't released your affections what your heart's desire is you haven't released the lusts of your flesh and so now you're all messed up you don't understand that it's important that you be separated from the world the only way you're going to be able to be released from your affections is to be released from the world Turn yourself over completely to God so that He may pour His affections in you. And that's the reason why He goes on to to make the six questions that He asks right after that, really to bring home the point that we should be separate. And this is why we should be separate. He said in their rhetorical questions, they don't require an answer. For what partnership is righteousness and lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The answer to this question is none. None, 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 and none. And since there is no fellowship amongst light and dark, there is no fellowship amongst God and the enemy, Christ and the enemy, there should be no fellowship with you between you and the world. You should separate yourself. You know, Pastor Jim, we're supposed to be living in the world, evangelizing. How are we supposed to evangelize if we're not in the world? You're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. You can't roll around in mud and not get mud on you. I know this because I've had to wash mud off me before. And so he's saying you need to be separate. You need to have different desires, affections, beliefs, principles, goals, and motives than the unbeliever because you have a new nature in you. You are a new creature according to the Word of God, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, which means by very nature you're not who you used to be. So stop trying to act like who you used to be. Hmm. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so here lies the Corinthian church. They, they've got the old things in this hand and the new things in this hand, and they've tried to somehow tried to knit them together as though they're going to be able to coexist. They're never going to coexist. This will always contaminate this if you allow yourself to jump in there and get dirty by it. You will say, well, Jesus did it. Yeah, Jesus loved sinners. Jesus loved the tax collector. But you know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't hang out with them without changing them. What? Jesus didn't hang out with them without changing them. He expects us to be in amongst them. He wants us to be in amongst them. It's our commission. It's what we've been called to do. But at the point that we're allowing so much time to be spent with them that they begin influencing us and not us influencing them, you have to ask yourself, are you being evangelized or are you evangelizing? And at some point, if you stay in that mess long enough, you'll be the evangelized, not the evangelist. This should be a scary thing to us. Because anytime you rub up against something, you're going to leave a piece of yourself behind. Sadly enough, anytime somebody rubs up against you, they're going to leave a piece of themselves behind you too. We need to protect that which God gave us. And be separate. Be separate. Be separate. Stop trying to dabble in the world. You can't. Because you're two different creatures. Who you were is no longer who or is no longer who you are. I feel like, again, the broken record thing, but it's so true. Man, I can still do all the stuff I used to do, call myself a Christian. Well, you can. You're a liar. You're going to end up not inheriting the kingdom of God, but you can. Because the Bible says you can't. And if that's the truth, then you've deluded yourself with some, with your truth, and your truth is going to keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. You must be separate because the Word of God tells us to be separate. We must be holy because the Word of God tells us to be holy. 
We are supposed to be different because we are different. We are to put on the new self, according to Ephesians. This thing that you were, take it off. And put on Christ. You know what that means? It means try to walk in the righteousness that Christ died to give you. Now, I said try. And I said try on purpose. Because there is a danger of condemnation in this, in this topic. Well, man, every time I try, I fall down. Well, praise God for grace. But if you're using grace to sin, you're wrong. You're not going to get it right all the time. But the longer that you're in the faith, the more you should get it right. You're not going to be perfect the day after you get saved, but the desire in you to be perfect should be there the day after you get saved. And this happens as we take off the old self, put on the new self. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's Ephesians 4.24. We're not supposed to be condemned by it. It should cause us some level of it. It should encourage us to know that I don't have to be perfect. I have to pursue perfection. Matter of fact, the word tells us, as you've heard me say many times, you won't be perfect until you're in the presence of the perfect. But if I was still as imperfect right now as I was when I got saved in 2006, or 2006 I'd, be a, I'd be a mess. And you guys would be a bigger mess for listening to me. Some of y'all may be a mess for listening to me anyway. <laughs> Number, I'm sorry. I'm going to read some verses to you. I think I've made this point, but I want to make it scripturally. 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone should love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. I use this verse because it doesn't really need an explanation. You know how you prove the love of God is in you? Act like God, not the world. He explains why in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride, boastful pride of life is not from the Father. That's from the world. So you can't be lusting. Your fleshly desires. You can't hold on to your old affections and say that you love God. James 4 4. You adulteresses. That's a strong, that's a strong word. How many people in this room married? Imagine if you would, and I'm assuming that you're married to the person that you care about. <laughs> I hope. Imagine, I don't know about you guys, but my wife is the seat of the earthly love. To the, it's the greatest understanding of love that I've ever known on this earth. And so my love for her is unlike anyone else on earth. My passion for her is unlike anyone else on earth. I am totally vested in what we have going on. Every piece of me physically is tied to her our dreams our hopes those of you that are married i hope you understand what i'm talking about an adulteress comes in and takes that from me 
which means that I think adultery is the worst thing you could, you could do to another person. Because it literally strips you of the greatest earthly love that you've ever had. And leaves you vulnerable in no other way, in a way that no other sin will. And God hates an adulteress for the same reason. Because he did everything to ensure that you would be a cared for bride, a loved bride, a sought after bride. And we've let the world come in in the middle of our relationship, and separate us. We expect God not to be mad about that? He has a right to be mad about that. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, the thing that drives a wedge between a husband and his wife, is hostility towards God? Do you not know that when you allow the world to divide you, that he's not going to be mad at you? That he's not going to be, I don't know what hostility of God means, Exactly, but I know everything that God is, He is perfectly. And I ain't all excited about being confronted with the hostility, the perfect hostility of God. Because I know my hostility, and it's pretty dangerous, but it ain't perfect. Hmm. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, we must be separate as Christ was separate. He kept himself holy even though he hung out with tax collectors, even though he hung out with sinners and adulteresses. He kept himself holy. He was in there with the intent to change there. And he never, he never, I can't think of anywhere in Scripture where they didn't just rebuke him and deny him that he didn't make positive change everywhere he was, changed lives everywhere he went. Number three. Church is holy as it submits to, submits to and commits to sanctification. The church is holy as it submits and commits to sanctification. 2 Corinthians 7 1 says this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Therefore, having these promises. What promises? Those people that commit their life to the Lord, that walk in holiness, have a promise. Do you know what those promises are? These are the promises according to this text. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will welcome them. I will be father to them. They will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. These are the promises that we have when we walk according to righteousness, when we walk according to our new, our new nature. That God is going to allow us to call, his, call Him our Father. And when we call Him our Father, that He's going to protect us, that He's going to provide for us, that He's going to watch over us, that He's going to hold us in, our, in His righteous right hand, that He's going to strengthen us in time of our need, that He's going to do all of those things. If, I love that this, people, this isn't a popular statement, but it's true. If we do what we're told to do, we serve an if-then God. That messes people up. If you do this, then I will do this. People say, that's not true. Salvation is by grace. If you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and declare 
that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. There is an if then even in your salvation. If you do this, then I will do this. Every promise of God comes with a if you do this, then I will do this. But let me warn you, every curse of God comes with one of those two. If you do this, then I will do this. It's all fun and games until you wake up with a wheelbarrow full of hemorrhoids. That's an Old Testament story. And I don't know there was a wheelbarrow, but you get the idea. My point is, we serve an if-then God. We have to both submit and commit to the sanctification process. The submit is the initial work of grace in our life. I think one of the arguments that frustrates me the most is when I tell people that I believe that you can refuse the unction of the Holy Spirit towards to salvation. I say, no, God's completely sovereign. If he chooses you, he chooses you, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't work for salvation. Submission isn't a, isn't a work. Submission is the antithesis of work. It's me laying down and saying, I can't work enough to accomplish this. And praise God, we didn't have to. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do everything that we need to be holy. But we have to submit to that process. We have to be willing to recognize that we can't cleanse ourselves. This is what the Bible says in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. Why is that? Why can, why can we not save ourselves? We can't save ourselves because we're dead in our trespasses, according to Ephesians chapter 2, before we're saved, it requires divine intervention for God to wake us up. You can't just be walking down the street and just be, you see a Jesus loves you sign on, a, on the side of the road and go, you know what, I think I'm going to start serving the Lord today. It sounds silly, but I've tried that. My grandmother knew I was going to hell. And I was pretty convinced I was going to hell too. And I can remember, all right, fine, I'll serve the Lord with no conviction. And it never worked out. But when conviction hits and that spirit is stirred and pulled out of the ground and made alive, it's a whole different ball game. I can remember walking into Cornerstone Church 2006 not giving a care in the world about the Jesus. I was going to church because my wife told me I had to go to church with her, and if I didn't go to church with her, her mom would be mad if she didn't go to church, so I had to go to church, or we couldn't date. And honestly, I thought that was a good trade. So I went to church faithfully, didn't, didn't pay attention at all until that day. And my pastor started giving his testimony. I didn't walk in there and say, today's the day I'm going to give my life to the Lord. It's going to be awesome. I've got it planned out. This is how it's going to happen. I was in there yawning just as tired as I was every other Sunday morning. My pastor started giving his testimony, and he said the name of Jesus in a particular way that caused my heart to start acting all weird and funny. It felt like this, this is how it started. Then he'd say something else. Then he'd say something else. Then I sound like one of those World War II things like they had back in the cowboy days, send messages, what do they call them? Telegraph. 
tick, 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 tick. And I was like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I was a hot mess, man. I done, they had armchairs there painted black, and I had, I was such a hot mess, I had to use my fingernail to peel all the paint off of it. Sweating, crying. And my life hadn't been the same since. You know why? Because the Spirit of God grabbed a hold of me. Wasn't a decision I made, it's a decision he made. You know what I had to do? I had to submit to it. You have to submit to it. Which means I can't make it happen for you. If I could, man, I'd, I'd hit you with a bag of oil or whatever it is I need to hit you with every time you walked out of here. But I can't do it for you. God has to do it for you. And that's what I pray for every day, that God does that for you. And that when he does that for you, when your heart, heart stands, starts sounding like that, starts feeling like that, you break out in a sweat for no reason, that you recognize it for what it is and you submit to it. Next thing we need to do is commit to the cleansing process. God saves us. We walk in righteousness. We have to commit to walk in righteousness, to walk in obedience to the word of God. You want to know how you prove you belong to God? Obedience. In a world that doesn't like that, that's a hard message to preach. I don't have to be obedient. God loves me. God loves everybody. God does love everybody. And he wouldn't want it that anybody should perish. But at the end of the day, if you don't submit to his calling and commit to his sanctification process, it doesn't, doesn't matter what you think. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You have to submit first, commit second, which is why Philippians 2, 12b through 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work, who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Praise God, though, you know, we, are, we do have to commit to it, but he doesn't make us do it by ourselves. Because just as equally as we, we are incapable of saving ourselves, we're incapable of walking in righteousness by ourselves. The Spirit of God convicts us to righteousness. And so now we're submit, commit, submit. And then you know what you got to do tomorrow? Submit, and then commit and submit. Over and over and over and over and over again so that you don't drift away according to the word of God. Fan into flame the gift which is, laid, which is given to you by the laying on of hands. Over and over and over again, the Bible says you need to be obedient. You need to pay attention to what you're doing. You need to submit and commit to righteousness daily. Amen? You want to be holy? Submit. And then commit to the sanctification process. God wants to spend eternity with you. And as we submit, we have to submit to destroying the defilement of the flesh. This verse says, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit. So from the flesh and from the spirit. That means we have to stop sinning and we have to stop lusting. I'm going to give you a truth that it took me a long time to figure out. No sin is ever walked out by man that doesn't find its genesis in a man's heart first. Did you hear what I said? Guys? Gals too, probably. I don't know. I've never been a woman. 
right? No sin has ever been committed that wasn't thought about first. And sometimes, depending on the size of the sin, you have to think about it a long time before you finally convince yourself that it's okay. And it usually comes out like this. God wants me to be happy. God doesn't want you to be happy over holy. Because he understands in holiness you'll find true joy. We're not called to be happy, we're called to be joyful. And so what does that what does that look like? How do we how do we ensure that we stay free from defilement of the flesh and defilement of the spirit? There's a verse in Jeremiah. I can't I can't quote it, sadly. But it it's a verse that's talking about siege ramps. And it's it's literally talking about siege ramps. Um, Jeremiah says, Do you not realize that the siege ramps this is how the siege ramps are built? And so I'm reading through Jeremiah and I and I read this and, and God hit me with this spiritual principle. Many of us don't remain free of defilement because we don't understand how siege ramps are built. Let me explain to you what a siege ramp is for those of you that may not know. A siege ramp is a ramp intended to siege a city, to lay siege of a city. Back in the day, Jeremiah's time, Old Testament times, and even into some New, New Testament times, the cities were built with walls around them. That was their form of protection. And the walls were very tall and the walls were very thick. So it says that the walls of Nineveh would have been so thick that two chariots could have raced side by side all the way around the top of them. That's pretty thick. And so for an army to try to bust through that wall would just be absolutely fruitless and they would just end up losing every man they tried to charge at that wall. And because they knew that they couldn't defeat the wall with a head-on attack, they couldn't defeat the person they were going against with a head-on assault, they decided that They'd build siege ramps. And so a man or men under cover, under shelter of shield, would approach the wall and they would dump a bucket of dirt at the base of the base of the wall. I'm oversimplifying, but base a drop a, a bucket of dirt at the base of the wall. And and the guys on top of the wall do what guys on top of walls do. Look at this guy down here being all stupid. Little bitty old bucket of dirt. It ain't gonna do nothing. He's embarrassing himself. There's no way I can be defeated standing up here on my wall. And then another bucket. And then another bucket. And then another bucket. The whole time we stand haughtily on top of our wall thinking we can't be defeated. Thinking that the enemy can't possibly come against us, destroy us, because we're we're too prepared. And then another bucket, another bucket, until ultimately. They have poured so many buckets of dirt that there's a ramp leading from far away from the wall all the way up to the top of the wall. And the enemy no longer has to fight you to get in. They just have to walk in. And you're ruined. This is how we, this is how we fall. This is how we become defiled in our flesh and in our spirit. We've convinced ourselves that somehow we're impenetrable that we can't be beaten 
God has placed us and secured us and wrapped a wall around us, given us everything we need to be holy. And we stand on top of what God has provided for us thinking that we can't be defeated. And the enemy, I don't know what your particular enemy looks like, but your enemy has come and placed a pile of dirt at your wall. My prayer is that there's only one. And then when that first bucket of dirt lands at the base of your wall, you recognize it for what it is. It's an attack of the enemy to defeat you so that you might ultimately be defiled and unholy. Our defense against those things aren't arrows or shields. They're an understanding of the truth. They're an ability and willingness and desire to stay separate. A proclamation of Jesus Christ and a submission to it. And then a commitment to that holiness. You want to keep your walls safe? Read the word of God and trust Jesus Christ that it presents there. Amen? I desire that the church be holy. Congregationally and personally. Let me challenge you. Filter the word through your life. And if you find anything lacking, shore it up the way that the Word tells you to shore it up. Separate yourself from relationships that are going to lead you straight to hell. And ultimately, commit to what God is trying to do in your life and submit to what God is trying to do in your life. And you shall be holy. As the Word says, be holy for He is holy. Let me pray that over you. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us such opportunity to, you've given us your word so that we might know what holiness looks like, what your will might look like. God, I ask that you give us a newfound conviction to pursue you instead of the things around us. Let us be a people that daily submit and commit to the righteousness that you've called us to. Let us be a people that trust you with everything that you are, recognizing that we are insufficient without you. God, I, I ask in, in full expectation that this may be painful, that you cut out of me and the people in this room the things that shouldn't be there, the things that don't glorify you, the things that cast a bad shadow on you, so that we might be able to reflect, reflect properly the magnificence of who you are to a lost and dying world. God, our heart is not only to be holy, but to show others how to be holy. And we know that we must be that before we can expect someone else to be that. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us that ability. We worship you, God. I thank you for the opportunity to speak your word. And I ask that you convict us all by the power of your Holy Spirit to live according to it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.